I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. At the end of January, after nearly a year of hearings, roundtables, and white papers, the House Energy and Commerce Committee's Subcommittee on Health released a draft of the much-anticipated 21st Century Cures Act. The draft, nearly 400 pages long, addresses a broad range of issues in the drug and device development and review process. We spoke to Nick Minetto, principal with the national advisory and advocacy firm Fagri BD, about the legislation, where the points of controversy lay, and whether, despite its bipartisan birth, political brawling is ahead. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Danny. Uh, A draft of the 21st Century Cures Initiative, nearly a year in the making, was released at the end of January. This is an effort to accelerate the pace at which drugs and devices are developed and brought to market. How significantly does this have the potential of of altering the way drugs and devices are are regulated in the United States? Well, that's a great question. I I mean, at the core, you know, it's not really doing anything dramatic to the the FDCA and the core, you know, processes that are in place, you know, when it comes to a drug and device regulatory review and approval. But it does have some very important provisions, particularly in areas like rare disease, to try and continue to, you know, accelerate and streamline the process. You know, really trying to take advantage of breakthroughs in you know, and scientific discovery and, and processes that have occurred over the years to say, look, are there better ways today to go about doing this to ideally reduce the time, reduce the cost, and reduce the risk of therapy development? Um, so you'll you'll see some interesting provisions around, you know, again, trying to drive um, clarity on the use of, you know, central IRBs. Uh, trying to streamline or develop a process for, you know, biomarker qualification um, and trying to be a little bit more um, aggressive of, of new and adaptive styles for um, review processes. So I, I know it's about, there are tremendous challenges out there. I, I know it's about 400 pages, but <laughs> can you sketch in broad terms some of the highlights, what, what the legislation is trying to do, you know, the framework mm-hmm. of it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so um, a couple of really big pieces, you know, one is around the area of um, continuing kind of building upon what I think the committee and what Congress started a couple years back in the last user fee package, but really trying to enhance the meaningful engagement of patients in the therapy development effort. So that no longer is the patient just certainly, you know, simply a clinical trials participant, but really trying to look at things like patient-initiated guidance, patient-reported uh, outcomes, patient preferences, benefit risk data, and just um, really trying to continue to move that forward so that the patient is a more active player um, in, in, the, in the process. Uh, like I mentioned, more regulatory reforms around 
um, uh, general, you know, things like guidance and uh, biomarkers and uh, things like surrogate endpoints, more clarity from the FDA is certainly a goal. Um, more incentives are, you know, there are a number of provisions and you've probably seen that they've received a lot of attention, incentives to try and encourage therapy development, particularly in areas that have been, um, you know, probably under-focused over the years because of scientific or other challenges. Um, and then there's a, a section that deals with sort of NIH, National Institutes of Health, and trying to, um, you know, enhance areas of the NIH that are focusing on things like uh, groundbreaking um, research focused on uh, Cures Acceleration Network or the Common Fund, um, some language around NIH priority setting uh, to have a better sense of where the agency is or isn't focusing its resources. And then there are a few provisions focused on on access and things like coverage with evidence development and the like so that not only do you get a ideally have more therapies being approved more quickly, but you also have them um, accessible to patients. So it really tries to look soup to nuts from basic laboratory research all the way through access. Well, and there's you know about a hundred and some odd provisions in the draft. One of the challenges regulators face is balancing safety with patient access. How, how good a job does the legislation do with this, and and how does it seek this balance? Well, you know, that's probably an interesting, uh, that's a question you'll probably get a different answer depending on who you ask. I know there are some uh, stakeholders who feel not enough is focused on the safety side and it's too much uh, focused on incentive, too heavily focused on incentives and, um, you know, accelerating and speeding up, uh, speeding up, speeding up access. So, um, you know, again, I think there are more reform-oriented provisions, you know, focused again on streamlining and modernizing. Um, given the challenges in the rare disease and other uh, spaces with, you know, unmet medical need and very uh, either modest pipelines and the high costs associated with therapy development. So um, that's going to be one of the areas of continued focus, I think, as this continue, as this develops into next iterations, seeing if the consumer and safety folks will uh, become more in line or more happy with it, or if that'll continue to spread farther apart. Although it, it does seem to take this attitude that, that patients with a deadly disease and no obvious choice of therapies, you know, have a much greater risk tolerance than someone looking for a statin as it were. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where they're trying to say, look, let's have a process or a bit more clarity around things like benefit risk, uh, quantitative data, patient reported outcomes or patient preference data. Um, you know, there's a provision that basically tries to clarify and require companies to make um, more publicly accessible their compassionate use or expanded access uh, policies. You know, there's a lot of interest in many states these days on, you know, right to try or similar Effort. So that's, again, a recognition of the challenges in that space and a desire to at least have more um, clarity. You know, it doesn't force a company to do something, but it does try and say we need a little bit more uh, sunshine and transparency in terms of your protocols and how you will or will not make these products available. I, I think and you, you spoke to this point, but one of the more interesting things the legislation seems to to do is is bring the patient in in a more formal way into the whole process of drug development and regulatory review. How far does it go to actually formalize that role? 
Um, well, it's it, uh, much of it is driving toward uh, additional guidance documents in the space. So it it pushes on things like saying you know FDA needs to have clear or policies when it comes to responding to uh, patient generated guidance or. Um, more clarity when it comes to what it will accept in terms of uh, patient experience or patient preference data. I think many stakeholders want to see that firmed up further um, and moved up earlier in the process. You know, the thinking is that, you know, this is something that you can't start too late, obviously, because you need to have this collaboration ideally at the earliest stage possible so that you don't have a situation where you're told, well, that's not, you know, you're shooting at the wrong target and you find that out too late. So I think there's interest in trying to clarify and further strengthen these provisions and even speed them up in the pipeline a little bit further than they are right now. There's certainly ongoing concerns about funding levels for for not only the NIH, but the FDA as well. Does does legislation do anything to, to address that in a formal way? So a couple things on that. I think that's one of the big uh, dividing points. You know, you have, I like to say the two R's, you have the reform and you have the resource piece. And you typically have many on the Republican side will accentuate reforms to the process saying we, you know, have, you know, it's not necessarily only a money problem, but you have a need for modernizing and and enhancing your processes. Whereas many on the Democratic side say it's primarily a resource problem, particularly at NIH and FDA. Um, And that's going to be one of the ongoing, I think, questions as this moves forward. On the NIH front, there are some provisions that have um, that basically support increasing funding for discrete NIH functions like the Common Fund, which was created about 10 years ago, and that is supposed to focus on big, cutting-edge, multi-institute type projects, cross-cutting projects. Um, so there's a provision on that. There's a provision to focus on the Cures Acceleration Network, but there are no dollar amounts specifically named in the draft bill. And that's, you know, smart politics because once you start putting out specific dollars, then you become a target and a lot of the questions become, well, how are you going to pay for it? And that's probably something that's another big unresolved issue that many on the other side have been pointing out. You know, what are the mechanisms to actually pay for what you're contemplating in in this package, and there have been some criticisms that the draft doesn't really do anything in that or does too little in that area. One of the potentially more controversial aspects of the legislation is the the issue of exclusivity to encourage the development of antibiotics. There's a provision that would provide an additional five years of exclusivity for a drug and make that exclusivity transferable. In another section, it would provide as much as 15 years of exclusivity for drugs that address unmet needs. The administration, in an effort to address the high cost of new drugs, has pushed to reduce exclusivity. How much do you expect this to be a point of contention as as the legislation pays out? I think it'll be a, continue to be a big one, and it's really one of the ones that um, opponents seized on very early on, saying it was too. Um, heavily focused on incentives and not focused enough on, you know, other areas of importance. And this has, you know, been an ongoing, this is not a new debate to Washington. Um, you know, there are some ardent believers who say, you know, we wouldn't have orphan drugs today if we didn't have the Orphan Drug Act, and it's done tremendous good in terms of where we are today in terms of therapies for um, rare diseases that would be, you know, untreated today if not for that law. You have others who say it's been too overblown and that we've been, you know, essentially making this a giveaway uh, that's not needed and that instead we need to be focused more on, you know, more support for earlier stage research to help uh, advance the balls and, um, you know, fail faster and the like so that you would encourage 
folks to continue uh, developing therapies. So there's it's a, it's a big question out there. You know, what is the right uh, role of additional incentives like exclusivity? And I think you're going to continue to see a lot of debate about that, especially as you note it, because there is a cost component there, um, and you have the balance, and you have you know you have examples like Savaldi where you have a lot of focus on cost of these advanced uh, treatments. And so you have to balance, obviously, on the front end, what it costs to develop and what uh, innovator needs to be um, needs to see to stay in the space versus, obviously, how do you make it accessible to the patient? And you have, especially when you have payers who are saying increasingly no or trying to limit um, access through a variety of mechanisms. So it's it's a very challenging question. I don't think there are any easy answers. Um, and it will continue to be a big uh, topic in this larger debate. Well, is the issue of cost addressed anywhere? And do you expect it to be addressed anywhere in the final version of the bill? Um, I mean, there's very the access pieces are not really uh, a key, a, a large component of cures. So I don't really um, see. I mean, that would be an interesting one if they could get there. But I think the lack of easy solutions will be one real challenge there. Um, you know, again, it's gotten a lot of attention, and I think, you know, the hepatitis C drugs have really helped drive this over the past year. It's not them alone, but, um, you know, you've seen sort of a pushback coming from the payer and employer community um, focused on the cost of therapies, but it's been a lot of, you know, finger-pointing and blaming and not a lot of movement toward coming up with real, you know, workable solutions, at least not that I have seen. So it would probably be a bit um, ambitious to see this package take on something like that, at least in a comprehensive manner. Well, this has been held as bipartisan legislation, mm -hmm. but there does seem to be a divide in how Republicans and Democrats view the way to address fundamental problems. But you referred to a moment ago as the, the two R's reform and resources. How much of a, a divide does this represent? I think it's fairly substantial, but that being said, you know, a lot of Republicans generally will support NIH and say that it is under-resourced. So I think um, NIH generally has a very strong uh, fan base on the Hill and people who get that there's a need for um, for additional funding to support the research breakthroughs. And the NIH has sort of, you know, they we doubled them in the late 90s to early 2000s, and then there was a bump during the stimulus of the eight, 2009, 2010 era, but then it's really been flat to declining since then. And, you know, this has some real negative ramifications um, when you look at sort of these very low success rates or pay lines of the NIH and the institutes. You know, you know there's a lot more good science than what's getting funded. So I think you have general agreement that NIH is a priority. And the big question, of course, is, well, how do you where, where does the money come from? And this is where you get into the bigger budgetary questions, you know, tax reform, other spending cuts, entitlement reform, you know, all that, which is beyond the cures focus really is, is you know, partly comes into play here. Um, you know, at the FDA level, you know, I think Republicans generally do feel more strongly that we have a need for reforms at the agency to upgrade it and enhance it and make sure that um, we're not sort of stuck using old tools and processes when much more advanced measures are available today. So I think that'll continue to be another dividing point more at the FDA than at the NIH. 
So in terms of process, what's the path ahead and what do you think are going to be the, the biggest points of controversy? Well, I think a couple of the big points are continuing to, are, you know, and you've nailed them, incentives and exclusivity or broader, um, you know, funding for, you know, pay for, you know, how are we going to pay for these, these proposals? And ultimately, you know, will it kind of go back on a bipartisan or more heavily bipartisan track? I think there is generally interest among many, like congresswomen to get in, in, um, in trying to go back to where this was, where it started out. And, you know, I'm not very surprised that there have been some um, fractures here. You know, when you make something concrete in legislative language, you know, it becomes a bit more real. You know, for eight months, we had a lot of general happy talk around, you know, a, a topic that most people agree on. We need to get cures to people more quickly. Um, but when you start getting talking about process and which uh, tactics or strategies do you use to achieve that goal, you know, you start having obviously some divergent opinions. So, um, getting some bipartisan support back to the table. Uh, a big question will be, I think, what does the next version look like? Um, how does it differ or not differ from the first draft? And, you know, um, will how will you start addressing some of the pay-fors? Will it slim down? Will it get bigger? And then ultimately, the other big question, of course, is what happens in the Senate? You know, they're starting a little later, but they seem to have a pretty robust commitment here. You know, they have a working group going in the Senate key committee of jurisdiction. Um, and they have a good track record for working on a very bipartisan basis, you know, going back to, you know, years when, you know, Senator Kennedy was at the top of the panel. So, I mean, I think they take that seriously. And it wouldn't surprise me if they, you know, make some real good progress in this in this space. So when it all is said and done, do you think the final bill is going to look anything like what we've got now? And, and when do you think we'll actually have a vote? Um, I think there'll be elements that are in today that will probably survive, but I think there'll be a lot in today that probably will not. And I think some members have been candid about that, that, you know, they expect this to also tee up some issues that will come up again during the next round of user fee negotiations, which are not too far off. So, you know, kind of float them out there today, but knowing that some of the more controversial or complicated topics just aren't quite ready for prime time, but it's a way to get the conversation going. Um, you know, Chairman Upton in the House has said that he wants to have a vote by Memorial Day through the full House. You know, that's pretty ambitious. Um, but, you know, in the House, you can do a lot more easily, given the way the majority, simple majority and the math works. Um, but I think it'll take more time if there's obviously a desire to get this back on a bipartisan track. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that slips a little bit. Um in the Senate, you know, has, has made no, uh, expressed no desire to try and meet the House in its timeline. They're saying they're going to work it through their process and, uh, you know, do what's needed to get, get to a bipartisan agreement. So I think it'll go a little slower over there. Um, and, you know, be interesting to see if something comes along, you know, later in the year or early in the new year before everyone really starts focusing on, you know, most heavily on 2016. Nick Minetto, principal with the national advisory and advocacy firm Fagri BD. Nick, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Danny. Take care. A few housekeeping notes. Over on our sister podcast, Rarecast, tune in to hear Noah Coughlin, founder of Run for Rare, discuss his 3,100-mile run across America to raise awareness for rare diseases. Then, starting February 27th, tune in to hear Chris Gibson, CEO of Recursion Pharmaceuticals, discuss his company's audacious goal to develop 100 drugs to treat rare diseases in 10 years. 
Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.